God did not credit our sins to us, but to Christ instead. And on the cross, God treated Jesus as though he had personally committed your sins, my sins. That's the gospel. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his series with part six of The Keynote of Romans. Throughout this series, we've explored the wonders of the gospel, the great news of Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul details in the Keynote of Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. You've learned that if you want to try on your own to gain a right standing before God, there's only one way. You'd have to meet the divine standard, and that is an impossible task. No one but Jesus Christ has ever lived that kind of perfect life. But the good news is, the gospel reveals to us another way. As you'll discover today, the amazing grace of God is that instead of holding you accountable for your sin, the Father attributes your sin to Christ on the cross. Meanwhile, the Father credits Christ's righteousness to you as a believer, treating you as though you had lived a perfect life of righteousness. What a great exchange. What a Savior. Let's open our Bibles now to join Tom Pennington with today's message on The Word Unleashed. In Romans chapter 4, as Paul explains justification, he uses this financial word 11 times. The word translated credit, as I said, is also translated impute. So theologians refer to what Paul is teaching here as imputation. If you don't know that word, I hope after the next few minutes you're going to fall in love with that word. There is no truth more precious to us as Christians than the word imputation. It's clear that imputation is at the heart and soul of justification. So let's look at this first accounting transaction. It means that God does not put your sins in your account as if you had committed them. Look at verse 8. As Paul is explaining and defending justification. He cites David in Psalm 32. Verse 8, he says from Psalm 32, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Take into account is the same word, to credit. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord doesn't credit to him. That's the idea. He doesn't put those sins that he's committed in his account. 2 Corinthians 5.19 puts it this way, not counting, not crediting their trespasses against them. So God doesn't credit our sins to us as if we had committed them. But instead, he credits our sins to Christ. This is the message of Isaiah 53. Again and again, Isaiah makes that point. For example, in Isaiah 53, 5, he says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. Christ died paying the penalty for our acts of rebellion. God credited our transgressions to Christ. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ, who knew no sin, sin on our behalf. You see, what happens is truly amazing. Instead of crediting your sins to you, think of the sins you've committed. God, in an act of grace, instead of putting those sins in your account and treating you as if you had committed them, instead puts them in Jesus' account as though Jesus had committed those sins. And then on the cross, he treated Jesus as if he had committed every one of those sins. That's transaction number one. He doesn't credit our sins to us, but to Christ. Accounting transaction number two. He credits Christ's perfect righteousness to us. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Again, as he's talking about David, he says, David speaks of the blessing on, on the man to whom, now notice this, God credits righteousness. And he credits righteousness, notice, apart from the law. That is, apart from his obedience to the law, apart from his own efforts. Again, the word credit is a financial term, meaning to post to a ledger. In other words, this righteousness is not our own. It is entirely the righteousness of someone else that has been deposited by God into our account. It's the same as what he did in imputing our sins to Christ. When God imputed our sins to Christ, Christ didn't become a sinner. God treated him as if he were a sinner. The same thing is true when it comes to righteousness. God does not declare us righteous because we are righteous. He declares us righteous because he has imputed righteousness to us. This is crucial. Justification has nothing whatsoever to do with any righteousness infused into me, wrought in me, even if it's by grace and by faith. My standing before God has nothing to do with anything I have done. It is an alien righteousness. It is the righteousness of another credited to my account. You say, whose righteousness? Well, we'll get there later in the book, but let me just give you a preview. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ became to us righteousness. Christ became to us righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ, who knew no sin, sin on our behalf. There's the first transaction. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's God's righteousness, yes, but it is the righteousness of God in Christ, adhering in Christ, and because of our connection to Christ. It is, I will argue when we get there, it is the righteousness Christ earned in 33 years of perfect obedience on this earth. He lived the life you should have lived, and God, in an amazing act of grace, credits that life to you. So there are two accounting transactions. And on the basis of those two accounting transactions, God makes one legal decision in justification. He declares our sins forgiven and us to be righteous before his law. It includes not only 
forgiveness, it includes righteousness, a right standing as though we had perfectly obeyed God's law. Look at chapter 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, who doesn't rest on his human merit or efforts, but simply believes in God, now notice this, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Notice the ungodly person who simply believes in Christ, God justifies him. That is a crucial word. The word to justify is a legal word. It's used in the context of the courtroom. In Scripture, it is always the opposite of the word to condemn or to pronounce guilty. It means to declare right with reference to the law. So on the basis of crediting our sin to Christ and crediting Christ's righteousness to us, God renders this legal decision. He is forgiven for his offenses, and he is righteous before my law. What a great truth. Now, my favorite illustration of what God does in justification happened to me years ago, and I share it often, and I make no apologies for that, because it was in this moment that I really came to grasp justification in a personal way. One month, I received my bank statement just the monthly bank statement, and I was going through it, and I noted that there was a deposit of $200 that I knew I had not made. Now, in those days, $200 was a lot of money, and you didn't just accidentally end up with $200 deposited that you didn't know you put there. I asked Sheila. She hadn't put it there either. This was not our money, and of course, as a believer, I felt compelled to go to the bank and try to correct this. Now, I thought, since it was in my favor it would be easy to convince the bank that this was their mistake. I was wrong. I, I dropped by the, branch, the local branch, explained what had happened. They said, well, sir, you know, we really think this is your mistake, but if you think that's true, then here's a number you need to call. So I called the number, spoke to several different people after remaining on hold for some long time. Finally, I got a person, and they said, well, you need to put this in writing. So I wrote a letter and said, you know, this is, this is really not my money. This is your money. And all along, every stage of this attempt, what I was hearing was, sir, sir, you must be mistaken. This can't be our mistake. You must have deposited this and simply have forgotten that this was your money. It's your money, sir. So I just gave up and spent it. But at the time, I remember thinking, I remember thinking, if I can get somebody else's deposits, maybe somebody else can get my bills. And then in a flash of illumination, it occurred to me, that is exactly what happens in justification. Jesus gets all of my bills, and he pays them in full, and I get all of his deposits. The gospel is a magnificent exchange. Christ gets the blame for my sin, and I get the credit for his obedience. 
He gets the declaration of guilty that I deserve, and I get the declaration of righteous that he deserves. He suffers the punishment for my sin, and I receive the reward for his obedience. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived my sinful life so that forever he could treat me as if I had lived Jesus' perfect life. No wonder Paul couldn't find it in himself to be ashamed of this message. In the gospel, God describes how he acted to provide us with the very righteousness that he demands and that we are so desperately lacking. Christian, don't ever lose the wonder and amazement of this reality. And live under a constant awareness of this truth in your life. If you have repented of your sins, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, there is nothing you can ever do that will improve your standing before God because you stand at this moment in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, there is nothing that you can do that will ever undermine your standing and God's declaration of you as righteous. When God declared you righteous, he knew every sin, past, present, and future, and he said, righteous. Now, this isn't an excuse for sin. Paul's going to say, shall we sin so that grace may abound? Of course not. True believers don't even think like that. This is instead an impetus to holiness. But, Christian, it is crucial that you live in light of this reality. Many Christians don't. They don't enjoy the freedom that they have in justification. It reminds me of one of my favorite cartoons. It's, it's a Herman cartoon in which, you know, the defendant who's been accused is standing before the bench of the judge. And, you know, the trial has obviously gone on. It's the time for the pronouncement of the verdict. And, and the accused is standing there and the judge says, I find you not guilty. But I'm going to give you a couple of years just to be on the safe side. <laughs> you see, some Christians don't enjoy what God has done and the reality of it because they think God is like that, like that judge. Listen, you will never stand before God and find yourself condemned for your sin. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That word condemnation is used three, three other times in the New Testament, and it's always used in a judicial context to describe the opposite of justification. Condemnation refers to a guilty verdict and the penalty that guilty verdict deserves. And Paul says, for the one in Christ, there is not, never will be a guilty verdict, and never the punishment that that guilty verdict deserves. Paul concludes the judicial aspect of his argument in chapter 8. Look over at chapter 8, verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who can make anything stick against the ones God has justified? God is the one who justifies, who declares righteous. Who can bring a charge against you when God has said righteous? Who is the one who condemns? Who passes a guilty verdict on you and says you're going to pay the penalty because Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and he is the one who's interceding for you. 
Really? You think something can overturn God's judgment, His decision? Can't happen. Paul says the righteousness the gospel promises is that righteousness outside of me, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to my account. That raises another question, though, and that is, how does the righteousness the gospel promises become ours? How do we come to enjoy this wonderful gift of a right standing before God? It's a gift, but how can I receive that gift? Well, Paul explains in the rest of verse 17. Back to Romans 1, verse 17. He says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Literally, out of faith into faith. This is a strange expression. It's, it's a Hebrew expression. A similar kind of usage occurs in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 in the Greek text. What Paul means here is that righteousness starts with faith and ends with faith. It's entirely faith from beginning to end. He's emphasizing that nothing but faith and faith alone can give us the status of righteous before God. Now, Paul proceeds to drive home his argument with a quotation from the Old Testament. And in quoting the Old Testament passage, Paul shows us that receiving God's righteousness by faith has always been God's way. And that brings us to the sixth and final reason that Paul was not ashamed and that we should not be ashamed of the gospel. We shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel because it has always been the only way of salvation. It's always been the only way. Look at verse 17. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Literally, the text says this, but the righteous out of faith, or the one who is righteous by faith, shall live. Paul's quote is from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. He quotes the same text in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. The writer of Hebrews quotes it in Hebrews 10, 38. This is really important. This little quotation at the end of verse 17, many see this as the apostle's text and the rest of Romans as his sermon on this text. In other words, Romans is actually a sermon on one verse from Habakkuk. I really like Paul, don't you? One verse. An entire letter on one verse. It's great. Now, to understand what Paul means here, you have to understand the context of this verse in Habakkuk. I'm not going to take you back there, but let me give you the context. In Habakkuk 2, the prophet is really struggling with what God has just told him. God has just said, because of the sin of Israel, I'm going to send Babylon. And Babylon is going to destroy the nation, and they're going to carry the remnant off captive to Babylon. And Habakkuk is devastated by this. He's first of all struck with how wrong it seems that God would punish unrighteous Israel with unrighteous Babylon. But he's also wondering what's going to happen to God's people. Would God really allow his people to be exterminated? Would it be the end of the Jewish people? Habakkuk responds to that with a resounding no. The righteous by faith shall live This word live can refer to physical life, but it's most frequently used in Scripture to refer to the supernatural life that God gives, or as we would say, eternal life. 
Habakkuk is saying this. This is not the end of God's people. Those who are righteous by faith shall live eternally with the supernatural life that only God gives. Many of the Jewish people would die in the siege of their cities. Others would die in the, in the hard, forced march to Babylon. But if they were righteous by faith, they would go on living through all eternity. That's God's point to Habakkuk. F.F. Bruce, the great New Testament scholar, writes, the terms of Habakkuk's prophecy are sufficiently general to make room for Paul's application of them, an application which, far from doing violence to the prophet's intention, expresses the abiding validity of his message. You see, in quoting Habakkuk 2.4, Paul wants us to know that it has always been God's plan to declare believing sinners righteous solely by faith. It was true in Habakkuk's time. It was true, as we'll learn in chapter 4, in Abraham's time long before. It was true in David's time, as he'll also reference in chapter 4. So let me wrap this all up. If you want to trust in yourself, if you want to try on your own to gain a right standing before God, there's only one way you have to meet the divine standard, and this is what it looks like. First of all, you've got to find a way to deal with your guilt and pollution inherited from your parents. Paul's going to deal with that in Romans 5. You are guilty because of Adam's sin, and it's been credited to your account. You've got to deal with that. But then, once you've dealt with that, here's how you have to live. You must never put your own desires or your own interests above that of other people. You must constantly love others and pursue only their good without a single moment of selfishness your whole life. From the moment of your birth until the second of your death, you must love God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You must obey him perfectly in everything. Because if you ever sin just once, your righteousness will tumble like a house of cards. Now, obviously, you can never gain a right standing with God by your own efforts. No one but Jesus Christ has ever lived that kind of life. But the good news is, the gospel tells us there's another way. The other way is for God to do something amazing in his grace. And that is, instead of crediting your sin to you, he credits it to Christ. And on the cross, he treats Christ as if he had committed those sins and lived your life. And then he credits Jesus 33 years of perfect living to you as if you had lived that life and he treats you as that deserves. And then on the basis of those two accounting transactions, he makes one final legal decision. That sinner is forgiven and he is righteous before my law. That's the gospel. No wonder Paul could never be ashamed. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes our current series, The Keynote of Romans. Tom will have a new series for you on our next broadcast, and we do hope you'll join us then. But before we leave you today, 
Here again is Tom with some closing thoughts. You know, Bill, I don't think there's any better way to end a study of justification than just to pray and thank the Lord for His grace. Let's do that together. Father, we are amazed at the grace you've shown us in Jesus Christ. We're amazed at the truth of justification, at the very heart of the gospel, is that rather than crediting our sins to us, we who have committed them, you instead credit them to Christ. And on the cross, you treated him as if he were us, so that forever you could treat us as if we had lived his life of perfection. Thank you, Father, that you have credited his righteousness to us, and we stand in him. We stand in grace, and we anticipate the day when we will stand in your presence blameless. Thank you, Father, for your grace. I pray for those who may be listening today who are still trusting in their own righteousness. Lord, help them to run to you even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.